0: first time or the first time in a long time, I want to say welcome to the table. Uh, where we try to practice the hospitality and the love of God as found and demonstrated in the gospel uh, and the way that we encourage one another in singing and we encourage one another as we learn and study the word and think about the word and the way that we drink mochas in the back afterwards and in the way that we do everything. So really glad you guys are here. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Doug. I give leadership to our young adult ministry, which is everybody like you guys, anyone between college and mortgage somewhere kind of doing life in Orlando, trying to figure out how you're going to afford $1,300 a month. To pay for rent, uh, you know the struggle. The struggle is real. Glad you guys are here. We have been all summer in a series called Storyline, and what we're looking at is the idea that this big story of God somehow meets the story of where we are. And the more and more we read it, we, we find ourselves uh, participating in this larger story. The Bible is not just some ancient book that has no bearing on where we are today. In fact, It has tremendous bearing on where we are today, and it informs the way we live, the way we think about things, the way we process through decisions and things like that, and tonight, we are coming to the end of that story in the book of Revelation, and I don't know about you guys, but um, I remember I became a Christian when I was 16, and I was reading through the book of Revelation for the first time, and it freaked me out, man. Like, there's like all the dragon stuff, and hellfire, and you know, angels, and all these like be Spoking things going on. If you've ever like been around Christian subculture, they have the whole left behind series situation. You guys know some of you know what I'm talking about. Like I just thought when I read through Revelation, I was going to read about Kirk Cameron at some point. Like I just didn't know that seemed to be the deal. And I just man, it freaked me out. Uh, and so maybe you're like me that uh, if you've ever read Revelation before, you're like, this is so weird. Like what in the world's going on? Uh, I hope to be able to help. Uh, enlighten you a little bit here today, that it, uh, it's not such a weird thing, there's actually something cool going on. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I have never heard uh, the word revelation before, I don't know anything about revelation, I don't know anything about the Bible, whatever. That's totally cool, I think we're going to be able to help you guys understand and come along with us. Again, I just want to say, uh, we love you here, we're glad you're here, uh, and so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to offer a mini challenge right up front. And then I'm going to turn to some ancient wisdom in the book of Revelation. Just see what it might have for us. And I think you guys are going to be surprised. And then finally on the end, I'm going to take us through a spiritual exercise. We're going to get a little bit kooky. I hope you guys are ready to get a little bit kooky, okay? like Not like Woodstock kooky, but maybe like Woodstock 99 kooky, okay? Is that kind of fair? Uh, So challenge, ancient wisdom, spiritual exercise on the end. And then Jason's going to come back up and we are going to sing a Revelation song one more time. Just a little refrain. Uh, before we hug and pray. All right, you guys ready to roll tonight? Okay, let's do it. All right. Uh, Setting this up, uh, I want to tell you guys a story because I want to let you know this is the challenge portion. Uh, I have two kids, Grace and James. Um, They're about to turn four and seven, and my daughter's older than my son, and so they have the whole situation in our household where whatever my daughter does, my son tries to imitate her, uh, you guys that had older siblings that you cared for, not the ones you hated, but the ones you cared for, right? You can remember growing up that you tried to do whatever the older sibling did. And so Grace will do something where she'll go, hey, I'm going uh, to go outside and play soccer. And James will go, I'm going to go outside and play soccer, right? Or Grace will be like, hey, I'm going to go, uh, you know, swing. And James like, well, I'm going to go swing. And it's just been this really cool thing over there, experience, where Grace will go, hey, James, come on, let's go outside. And she'll go, and then I'll hear him like a little meathead. Uh, that he is, oh, come running through, and he'll follow his sister outside. Well, this has been really cool. Grace does something, James follows. Grace says, come on, James follows. Well, just recently here, uh, James has done something a little bit different, and it's heartwarming. Grace will say, hey, James, let's go outside and play soccer. And James will come running out, and he'll go, Hey, army man, come on, let's go play soccer. And he'll get his army man and pick him up and take him outside with him. And it's just been incredible for me for this reason. James understands that part of being a follower is also being a leader. And I don't know if you've ever known anybody who's a follower of Jesus before. Maybe you're someone who's here and you're trying to follow Jesus. And you may think or be under the impression that following Jesus is simply about following Jesus and that's all. It's about me and my relationship with Jesus or it's about me and trying to be really good, or it's about me and whatever. But part of following Jesus involves you being like my son, where Jesus says, let's go this way, and you say, okay, Jesus. And then you turn around and you say, someone else, come with me. Following Jesus includes leading others to do the same. That's what we're about here at the table, following Jesus and leading other people to do the same. And I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself as a leader before, but everything we're going to read from the ancient wisdom in just a little bit is going to teach us about leadership principles. I don't know if you know that. The book of Revelation is, in a third of it, is dedicated to leadership principles. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself as a leader before, but I'm going to make the argument, the challenge right up front, that everybody in this room is a leader of someone. And let me show you what I mean here. Here's kind of the progression of leadership. Number one, you might be someone who leads yourself, okay? At minimum, if you've got no one else around you you haven't been able to extend your influence, you lead yourself. And everyone who's ever had an 8 a.m. class or an 8 a.m. call time for their job knows this, because you set your alarm for 7.55, right? Uh, and the alarm goes off, and you have that moment where you go, get out of bed. <laughs> Two feet on the floor, you can do this, let's go. Uh, Or those moments where you're about to have a presentation, like you're about to have a big pitch to your VP or something like that, and you have to sit down and have that conversation. You're in the bathroom giving yourself the mirror speech. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, the mirror's right here, and you're going, you're an incredible person. You can do this. Like, you have the skills. You're confident. You're good enough. You're six foot one, six four in heels. Let's go do this right now. You got it, right? If you've ever had that moment right there, you are leading yourself. Well, what's really interesting is the Bible is clear on this. In the Old Testament, David, King David in Israel said this in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless it. Bless the Lord. Soul, I know you don't feel like blessing God today, but you listen to me, soul. You are going to bless God. I know you don't want to sing that song. I know you're a little bit mumbly here today, and you're just like, I don't want to sing these songs. When's the guy getting up to talk, right? But no, 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 no. You're going to sing right now. Um, in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says this uh, in First Timothy four seven: Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. At minimum, everybody who follows Jesus, anybody in this room, you also lead someone else. You lead yourself because there are days you don't want to follow Jesus. There are days you don't want to be good. There are days you don't want to follow the rules. There are days you don't want to not speed, uh, but you have to tell yourself, we are going to obey the rules. And you get in the car and you're like, no texting while driving. Let's do this. Put the phone in the back. You promised Oprah. Let's go. Come on. We're doing this, right? So, at minimum, you lead yourself. Some of you are going to be leading a family one day. Maybe you're already leading a family. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're one of our couples who are here today. And you as a husband or you as a wife, you are participating in leadership in the family. Uh, There are days where... You and your mate don't want to eat well. You're like, you know what, what if we just eat nachos all weekend? And one of you has to have the the, the voice of reason that goes... Mm, can we throw just maybe a salad in there just to kind of mix things up i don't know right so it, it, when you get into a relationship especially a serious relationship you realize that you're leading in a family when kids come along there's a whole new level of leadership some of you uh, are leading a group maybe you're with us and you have this group that you lead you're a life group leader you're a discipleship group leader right so you've got a group of 3 or 4 people you're facilitating a life group in fact if you're not in a life group here today, we're starting new life groups in that room right afterwards. So if you're like, what is a group? I've never heard of this before. We've got this great thing coming for you right after this. Some of you are leading a group, and you know what it's like. Others are leading teams here. You're leading in the host teams. You're leading at the, the cafe. You're leading on the front porch. You're, you're leading in some sort of team or Maybe at work, you're leading a project team where you're doing something, right? The next layer up from that is leading a ministry, Uh, Here, that means you are leading like a young adult ministry, or you're leading a student ministry, you're leading a kids ministry, you're leading a choir ministry, you're leading a legacy adult ministry. The next level up from that is to lead a campus. In other words, you're part of a team, and you're leading that team to go plant a church somewhere. We just did this on the west side of town. We planted a new campus, and Christian, who's right over here, is helping lead that team over on the west side of town. Uh, there's a there's a church uh, in Montreal, Canada that we're going to go visit soon. And if you want to go with us, I'm going to just, this is a shameless plug. I'm letting you guys know this. There's a link on the screen that's coming right now. If you want to sign up to go with us to help support some people who are leading a campus in Montreal, Canada, that's right, French-speaking Canada, Canada. Uh, you can sign up for that. There are people who do that. We are big fans of church planning here and campus planning here. And so if that's something that gets your boat going, great. You may be leading that someday. Or you may be leading a network of campuses, a network of churches. And this is what the Bible calls an apostle. Have you ever see anybody who's like, I'm the apostle? That's someone who leads a whole network of churches, churches of small groups and teams and families and singles who are leading at minimum someone. If you're someone who wants to follow Jesus here today, this is the big idea. This is a challenge up front. It's going to require you leading someone else, at minimum, yourself. And so John, as he's writing Revelation, knows this. And so he wants to spend a little bit of time talking about leadership right up front. And so we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to look at Revelation 2, uh, starting in verse 12. He's writing to this church called the Church at Pergamum. And he writes this, "'And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword.'" Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's really confusing, right? There are all these, did you guys notice that? Those who dwell in the land of Satan. You're like, oh, what is that, right? Right? And then at the very end, they're like, listen, I know what you guys need, manna and stones. And every one of you is like, what is he talking about here, right? This is the whole, did y'all notice that as I read it? They're just these things that you were reading. You're like, okay, that makes sense. That's a hurdle. Okay, it's like driving through a Publix parking lot. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're like, this is going to be fun, but boom, ugh. Why they put speed bumps here and crosswalks, oh, right? This is what it's like reading through Revelation for a lot of us who are today. And part of the reason that it's this way is because of the way Revelation is set up. Revelation is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to the churches, predominantly in Europe, modern-day Europe, Turkey, Greece, and he's writing in a time of intense persecution and there's just seems like there's the government and the people in charge are trying to crack down on Christians in the area. And so John has to use very cryptic language to hide some of the meaning from the government who's oppressing Christians. Now let me see if I can give you an example of this. You guys remember 10 years ago when the word things or the letter things became really popular in text messages or in chats? Uh, LOL, right? Uh, L-M-F-B-O. Oh no, I said the F. I shouldn't say that, Right? I'm sorry, Jesus, for saying F. Um, Right? Uh, Rolling on the floor laughing, R-O-T, on the floor, L-O-L, right? Right, you remember all these things? Do you remember when you first started doing that? How many of you 10 years ago were old enough to text and you were doing this? Show of hands. Yes, Christians, I know who you are. Uh, Right, but this is the reason why you started using that language. Because you wanted to hide it from your dorky parents. Do you remember this? You could send stuff in chats and that way you had cover if your parents suddenly walked by and they're like, who are you talking to? And you're like, nobody, a girl named Becky. What are you writing to Becky? Nothing, right? And they're like, I don't believe that. And then your parents got on there and they scrolled down. And they're like, LOL, what is that? And you're like, I don't know, I was just hitting the keyboard, right? Suddenly my voice changed in that whole uh, scenario right there, right? I went through puberty, sorry. Uh, Right, but you're hiding all of the meaning there by using these terms. Or some of you today, let's skip ahead. Y'all send emojis out. How many of you are like emoji and GIF champions in your text exchanges? Yeah, okay, right? Haley Felder, the meme queen over here, super good at that, right? I have whole text exchanges with my life group and we're all like old, boring, suburban parents, And our entire text exchange is just animated GIFs going back and forth. That's it. It's just Medea over and over and over again. (laughs) It's just like doing something crazy and hilarious. And we all implicitly understand it. And we can send really like inappropriate stuff through GIFs. And if my kid sees it, I'm in the reverse position now. If my kid sees it, she's like, what's going on there? I'm like, nothing. It's just a dinosaur that has no meaning. Just move along here, Grace. You don't need to see this. But those symbols hide the true meaning. And that's what John's doing here. He is trying to write something that's coded so that if the government tries to look at it, they're like, Christians are weird. They're in a cult. I don't need to just move along here. I don't need to look at things. So I want to just spend a few minutes decoding some things here, and i want to give you a re-rendering of this text to see if it, if it makes more sense, All right? You with me? Stay with me here. Stay with me, table. Okay, so here's a couple of the phrases that seem to stand out that don't really make sense. They may be on your screen here. Number one, the first one's this whole Satan's throne business. You dwell where Satan dwells, and... Um, Satan's throne is referring to like this pluralistic society uh, that exists at that time. Um, Where this church Pergamum was, was uh, an incredibly pluralistic, multi-religious town. Lots of temples, uh, anything that could be worshipped, it was okay to be worshipped. Any kind of sexuality that wants to be practiced could be practiced, except for Christianity. Anything that wanted to be worshipped could be worshipped, except for Christianity. Right? So um, you could believe in anything except Jesus. That's the kind of town it is. And so you can imagine, it's a very hostile place for people who are Christians to walk into. So let me just give you kind of an example of this. Um, some of you, I'm looking around here, you went to the school in Gainesville. okay? Um, go Gators, right? I'm looking at summer. I'm looking at uh, old Zach over there. We got some people who like to... Do this thing right here, we we have this summer, Zach, we got this going on, okay? Some of you like to do this. I want you to imagine you went to school in Gainesville, but then, like our friend Kelly, you got into grad school in Tallahassee. And now it's game day. And you're in your apartment and you're like, ooh, oh man, I'm putting on the blue and the orange, here we go, and you step outside that door, door shuts, it's too late now, and you walk around and everyone is in like the maroon and the gold, what is it, garnet and gold? Okay, sorry, Garrett is here somewhere going, jeez, Doug, what's going on? You're at the Garnet Gold. You've got the blue and the orange on and you're walking around Tallahassee. Everybody in Tallahassee is hissing at you. "Uh," And they're doing the like Tallahassee uh, uh," thing. Just everywhere you go, you're hearing this. You can imagine every eyeball is on you. Can you imagine the type of judgment that you would face in Tallahassee on game day if you were wearing blue and orange, Right? Kelly, you experience this on game day? Right, okay, a loyal gator in Tallahassee. Right, you experience this all the time. This is not um, that different from what it was like to be a Christian, but much more extreme on a spiritual level. When you wore a cross on your necklace uh, in Pergamum at this time, everybody looked at you like you were this evil, crazy person. You can imagine how it must feel to be a Christian at that time period. It's going to feel like you are in Satan's city. And so John knows this, and right up front is saying, "Hey, I know you guys dwell in Satan's city," Um, and he's using that language accordingly. Okay, the next thing is this: is he talks about the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and all this. So let me just summarize this real quickly. Uh, Balaam was this Old Testament prophet. Now he wasn't a Christian prophet. He was like a free agent prophet, okay? So uh, it's free agent season. He had no team. He's just like, I'm for hire. Anyone can hire me. Uh, and this, team, this king named Balak hires him so that he will go and pr- uh, pronounce a curse on Israel. They're in this war. Uh, and so he's like, hey, go pronounce a curse. So Balaam tries to go do this. And he tries a couple times. He can't get it. And for some supernatural reasons, he can't speak a curse on this town. And so he comes back to the king. He says, Balak, listen, that's not going to work. Let me give you a new approach. Uh, in Moab, this, this country you're a part of, there's a lot of beautiful women, okay? Uh, all the single ladies, right? Put your hands up, no rings on it, right? And uh, he's like, here's my thing. There are a lot of bachelors uh, living in Israel. Why don't you take all these beautiful Moabite ladies, put them on a party bus, send them down to Israel, make sure they got that one like, like uh, club dress that they like to put on and those heels that are popping, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, fake eyelashes, get the hair done, spray on the stuff, right? Show up, look beautiful, bat your eyes, uh, post up in the corner. You know I'm talking about ladies where you do this thing, right? When you have your, when you have your drink at the club and you're just kind of like this, this thing. You guys, y'all are like, we're Christians. We don't ever go to the club. None of us go to Cowboys and Dance, uh, right? So you're up there posting up in the Cowboys equivalent of Israel at the time, just doing your thing. Uh, hoping all these bachelors will come ask you out, you will dance, you will fall in love, you will get married, you will make babies. But here's the thing, the Moabites did not believe in Jesus, they did not believe in Yahweh, they are not following Yahweh, and so they are luring these Israelites uh, into their sexual practices, into their religious worldview by way of mating. So they are, they are um, mandating a strategy of immorality uh, and syncretism through intermarriage. And so when John is bringing this up, calling back to Balaam, calling back to Balak, even the Nicolaitans, he's saying there are people among you who are advocating for compromising that which you believe. Just take whatever you believe, water it down a little bit, don't offend people, compromise, 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 compromise. And that's what he's talking about. So this is the situation in the church. Next thing up here. Whoops. Whoops. Next thing up here is just, uh, he says this, they're going to war against them with a the sword of their mouth. He's like, I'm going to war against them. What, what's he talking about? He's basically saying he's an apostle. He's going to come in and he's going to have harsh words for all of these people. Now, here's the thing. When an apostle who is a leader over a network of churches comes in to meet with some of the leaders, he's not coming in with like guns ablaze, shooting people. He's, he's just doing one of these things where he's like, Hey guys. Let's remember what's going on here. Let's remember the stakes that are going on here. I need you guys to not compromise anymore and to not teach compromising things. And he's gonna rebuke them with the goal of them repenting of this error so that they can come back into fellowship. You guys ever had one of those moments where like a parent or someone had to rebuke you? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like maybe you're in high school or maybe you've had this experience kind of post-college or whatever, but maybe you have one of those moments where you're spending way too much money and you keep looking at your budget, but then you realize you're overspending and then you don't even want to like log into your bank app anymore. Like you go in and you're like, let me see how much, I'm just gonna go ahead and keep spending. You know what? I'm just not looking at that. And so maybe your parents or maybe your friends, maybe your life group, they have to have an intervention moment where they sit you down. They're like, listen, uh, we're friends. We're going to get through this. But I'm looking in your closet and you have all of these amazing dresses. Every time we go to uh, Cowboys, I see all the dresses and the fake eyelashes you're wearing. I know what you make because you basically make $5,000 a year. I know there's no way that your annual salary can pay for all this stuff. We need to have a conversation. Your friends are not there to police you. Your friends are there to be partners with you, to help you adjust your budget to your lifestyle. They're having an intervention. When John says that he's going to come and use war words, he's saying, I'm going to have an intervention for everybody in leadership. Because sometimes you've got to call people into alignment to make sure that they're uh, sticking with the truth and not compromising. And that's what he means. Finally, he talks about this stuff of hidden manna and the stones and all that stuff. Manna, as you guys may know, in the Old Testament was like this Panera bread that just appeared in the Old Testament on the tent every day. You guys ever walk into Panera when they're baking the fresh bagels and stuff? Yeah, You know what I'm talking about? You walk in and it's just like, ah, like, yes, I will have a bread with that soup. Thank you very much. I was against carbs until I smelled that bread. Uh, that, that manna would appear every day on the doorstep in the Old Testament when the people of God were wandering in the desert. Like they would wake up and they're like, what are we going to eat, Panera? Right? Just right there. So he says there's going to be Panera for you, fresh bread. There's also going to be this white stone. Well, what's a white stone? The white stone we think is something that you would give. It was like a plaque that you would give to a freed slave who is now a member of society, that they would either wear or they would, they would place prominently in their house to let everybody know that they were now free. It was a symbol of significance and purpose and meaning in someone's life. Not unlike the Rolex watch you get, like when you retire, or not unlike a medal you might get at the end of a race or something like that, or kind of a you know, state championship football ring or something like that. It was something that showed the significance of a, of a transitional moment in your life. And so what John is saying is that when Jesus comes back, the things he's going to give to the people there, the people who are faithful, is he's going to give them nourishment. He's also going to give them significance. Uh, And we're going to talk about what those mean in just a little bit. So with that clear, let me give you this. Uh, I tried to render this text in light of that clarification. So let's read this. It's going to be on screen here and see if this makes better sense to us. Okay, you guys still with me? I know that's a lot of information. Okay, hopefully your eyes are not glazed over. Let's see if we can walk through this. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, the words of Jesus. I know that you live in a pluralistic and hostile city for believing Christians. This is tough, my friends, and even in spite of this, you did not deny faith in Jesus, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you. But I have a few things to challenge you on. First, there are people in your fellowship, in volunteer and in leadership positions, who teach immoral things as moral, Unbiblical things is biblical, and what is more, you have not called them out and held them to the standard of the gospel. Therefore, it is up to those who lead the church to call these people towards repentance. If they are unteachable and unyielding in their error, I will come to you soon and rebuke them, as is my role as an apostle. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the ones who are leading faithfully and sustainably, Jesus will continually pour out on them the things that matter. More than a pink Cadillac more than a bonus, more than a paid holiday. Jesus will bring sustainable motivation and freedom within the calling. Now, some of you like that little pink Cadillac bit, right? Now, why did I put that in there? I wanna talk about this. Uh, There are four principles here. In light of this rendering, there are four principles I want us to just focus on for the rest of the time here, okay? Four principles for leaders. So if you have notes, this would be a good time to take notes. And here's the first one. Number one, leaders are evaluators, Leaders are evaluators. If you're someone who's going to lead on a team, and a group, and a family, uh, as a church plan, as an apostle, whatever you are in your business, in your organization, uh, leaders are people that, by definition, are evaluators. They're constantly asking what's working, what's not working, in real time, so that they can align the project towards the goal and make sure that you're moving towards that goal as efficiently as possible. That's in a marriage, that's in a family, that's in a project, it's a team, it's in a group. In a life group here, if you guys are part of a life group Bible study, you know this because at some point the leader will go, hey, we've been meeting for three weeks. How are we doing? Do we want to continue meeting? Do we want to stop meeting? Do we want to keep going? Like, how does this work, right? How are you guys feeling? Uh, Most of our groups start with that assessment question way up front. Leaders are evaluators. They're just by nature the kind of people who are stopping and asking Let's review what's going on. This is what John does here. When he comes in, he says, hey, you guys are doing really good, but I have some things I want to challenge you on. He is bringing them in these uh, verses here, an evaluation, and he's modeling good leadership for us. Now, the first principle, don't miss this, it's connected to the second principle, and that's it. Leaders uh, start with the positive and then move towards the challenge. You guys know this. Anytime you're evaluating, you start with the positive and you move towards the challenge. Right? So, some of you are dating, and you guys know this to be true. You go on the first date, right? Coffee. It's, it's a good scene. You drive separately. Both of you pay separately. There's no kissing, right? You leave separately. Second date's probably a separate situation. Third date, maybe you ride together in a car because you've built trust. Fourth date, you maybe go to a sit-down joint because, like, there's a little more trust, and he's ready to break out the wallet. Uh, you know, maybe fifth date's like a white tablecloth situation, not too nice. Okay, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Sixth date, you're going to one of the parks, right? That's typically how this works. Uh, seventh date, you're like road trip, right? We're going to go to the spring, something like that, right? We're going to go see something cool. Uh, you're on eighth date. You've never talked about what you're doing. You just kind of are, have agreed to keep shuffling to these events together. <laughs> and the girl is on this exchange with all of her friends, Okay, and it's just GIFs going back and forth. And like that one emoji that does this, right? <laughs> he, he's on eight dates, have y'all kissed? No, hey, what's going on here? Well, we're Christians, oh, right? Uh, <laughs> like, he's paying for things, yes, okay, but y'all haven't, well, like, where are you at? I don't know, I don't know how he feels about me, but he keeps asking me on dates, I don't know. The guys have a whole nother exchange, and that exchange is also just GIFs, but it's just GIFs of LeBron dunking on people. And that doesn't mean anything sexual. It's just they like LeBron and think he's good at basketball. And the only time they talk about the dates, you're like, hey, you're going out with that girl again? Yeah, cool. Are you going to be back in time to watch the playoffs? Oh, for sure. Okay, cool. That's all guys are thinking, right? But you have that one magical moment where you'll sit down on the eighth date and you look across the table and you go, hey, so what are we here? What are we doing here? And you are DTRing. Do you all know what this is? Defining the relationship. You are evaluating for the first time, and you're starting the leadership process in that dating relationship. Hey, this is date number eight. What are you thinking? What's going well, right? And you start there. Hey, what's going well? Well, this is going well, and this is going well, and this is going well. What's going poorly? Well... Um I think we should define what we are. Are we dating? Are we boyfriend-girlfriend? How's this working? I don't want to date anybody else. You don't want to date anybody else? Cool, we should be exclusive. Okay, well, let's set up some physical boundaries. What are we thinking? Okay, yeah, I can live with that, right? You're just, you're kind of setting that up. It would be really bad if on that eighth date, you came in and you're like, hey, let's evaluate things. Here's where you suck. Um, like, I'm not sure what's going on with that hair. And... Uh, you know, that one dress you wore to Cowboys last week was maybe a little too immodest because all the guys were looking at you and, uh, yeah, right? If you led, with, can you, ladies, if a guy sat down and said, hey, I want to define the relationship and you secretly send that last text message off to all your girlfriends, we're doing it finally. We're going to talk about this. And then the guy leads with a negative. You would be like, I'm out. Can someone come pick me up, please? Uh, uh, I have to go to the bathroom, right? You go off to the bathroom, wait for your girlfriend to show up, Right. Get out. Maybe you, they, she didn't get there quick enough, so you call Uber or Lyft, and you're just like out of there, right? So, if you're having the DTR, much like with everything else in life, in your family, in your team, everything, you, you, you get to a point where you evaluate. Evaluations are healthy, and you lead with a positive. John says this I know this about you guys. You guys are faithful to Jesus, living in a really hard land. That is tremendous. It's to be celebrated. But I have this one concern that I want to challenge you on. You start with a positive but you also address all of the challenges that are going on. Talking about the challenges, especially in light of the positives, is so healthy because it gets everything out onto the table, and now you have a framework for dealing with it. You guys have all been in those dating relationships, right, where you never talk about anything wrong. You're like, how's everything going? Great. How's everything going with you? Great. Okay, cool. You want to go to the movies? Sure. You want to go to the movies? Sure. And you go to the movies, neither one of you wants to see the movie? Like you hate it? Uh, it's one of the live action animation, reanimations, reconfiguring of something. And you're just like, oh, I don't like this. Right. But you both are so afraid to say something negative. You're like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, that's great. Cool, 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 cool. You're like, Isaac, cool, 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 right? <laughs> yeah. And it's miserable. You get to this point where it, it's just like a cold war. Like you're never talking. The same is true in anything that you lead. You have to be able to talk about not only the positives, but you've got to be able to talk about the challenges as well. And this is what John does. I have this thing against you. And if you don't correct it, I'm going to come in and I'm going to rebuke you guys and stage an intervention so we can deal with it. So leaders are always, always evaluating. They start with positive and then move towards a challenge. Number three, leaders know that teachability is the only shortcut. Teachability is the only shortcut in life. Teachability is the only shortcut. You want to get between here and there? You're like, what's the shortcut to get there? Teachability. Be teachable. Uh, Blessed are the flexible, for they will not get bent out of shape. You ever heard that before? It's one of like John Maxwell's new laws, new Ten Commandments, kind of new things. Uh, Flexibility is so key in any job, in any team, in any role. You've got to be flexible. Flexible people are teachable people. They're the people who go, hey, I can learn this, and I can learn this, and I can try this, and I can do this. Uh, When John is writing this, he says to the the church here, he says, the problem with most of the teachers, the teachers, the Nicolaitans, the the problem with... um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the people who are like Balaam and Balak. The problem is not that they're teaching bad things. All of us are going to teach bad things from time to time. You guys are leaders in different ways. Life group leaders are going to have a bad night. Um, uh, in your team, in your organization, you're going to have a bad day where you don't lead really well. Uh, in your family, in your, in your you know, romantic relationship, you're going to have bad nights. Everyone has bad nights. Everybody has bad stretches. That's okay. The problem is not having a bad stretch of leadership. The problem is being unteachable and unflexible in yielding to wisdom. When someone sits you down and they, have a, they lead with a positive and they give you a challenge and you just do this thing and you're like, uh-uh, I'm not listening to you. You don't know anything, I'm the leader of this team. Who are you to talk to me about this, right? That goes poorly. The unteachable people will be the unemployed people very quickly, okay? This is true. And in dating relationships, if you're unteachable, you will be undateable very quickly, right? Uh, And in marriages, if you're unteachable, you will be divorced really quickly. It's true. Look, some of you are like, I can't believe you talk about that. And I'm not making fun of you here, but hey, can we just be honest here? Teachability is like this elixir in life. And if you can just listen to truth, no matter how it comes to you, God is going to get you where you need to go. Because teachability is the posture of someone who is following and also leading. I know that Jesus is my standard and I'm going to follow him. And if he tells me to zig, I'm going to zig. If he tells me to zag, I'm going to zag. And if he has to speak through my wife to tell me that, I'm going to do that. And if he has to speak through my employees to tell me that, I'm going to do that. If he has to speak through my life group to tell me that, I'm going to do that. If he has to speak through an apostle to tell me that, I'm going to do that, because ultimately want to be on the side of truth. I don't want to be over here as just some jerk who's like, I know the right way. Because at the end of the day, we're all fallen and all broken. None of us knows the right way, right? We are doing the best we can. But the thing that takes you from doing the best you can to the better you can is teachability. And so if you want to be someone who gets where God's going, if you want to be a leader, you've got to practice teachability. Number four, leaders need Jesus to sustain them Leaders need Jesus to sustain them and motivate them. The thing that Jesus says he's going to bring to this church is sustainability and motivation. When you wake up tomorrow morning, the thing that's going to get you out of bed at 7.55, when you've got to be at work at 8, is not, oh man, I'm going to get that paycheck. Because we all know we get the raise or we get the bonus or we get the whatever. It's really nice for like the first week. And then the second week, you're like, oh, they gave me more responsibility. Crud. Oh, I hate people. Ugh. Oh, right? You just have that. You just, oh, my God. Okay, cool. You're going to pay me six figures. That's awesome. How many hours a week am I going to work? A million? Ooh, this is a problem. There's only 168 hours in the week. How many do you want me to work? 170? Wow, right? Everyone knows the paycheck's not going to motivate leaders. In a, in a relationship, and I'll just tell you guys this, sex is not going to motivate you all the time. Uh, Sex is not sustainable, right? Uh, There comes a point in a relationship, in any marriage, anything, where the dude gets fat, right? Uh, You guys all got the new Face app, right? We're all looking at it, seeing how old we are. That happens quickly, y'all. Let me just tell you, right? You get ugly. My wife has stayed beautiful all this time. I've gotten ugly. And at some point, I got fat. And when I take off my shirt and I go to the pool, someone's yelling out, there's a whale getting in, right? Uh... At some point, you get ugly, and the sexuality of it all, it's not going to keep you going um, in your your job, in your group. Just being in a house and having a group all the time is not going to sustain you. At some point, you're like, man, these people kind of get on my nerves, right? Leading a team, leading anything. It's not sustainable to go after the high things. But let me tell you what is sustainable. Motivation and encouragement. And what Jesus says he's going to bring to people is motivation and encouragement for sustainability. He's going to give us manna. The thing we need that's going to satisfy our souls. The motivation to get out of bed. The sense of calling and purpose that's going to be there. And he's going to give us the energy from that to sustain us. He's going to give us significance and meaning in the jobs that we do. In our teams that we lead, he's going to give us meaning and purpose. In the groups that we lead, he's going to give us meaning and purpose. In the relationships we're in, as that person fails me time and time again and I fail them time and time 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 again. Jesus is going to give me meaning and motivation and purpose. I read this really interesting article uh, the past week in The Atlantic. It's about people our age. The person, the average person who graduates from college now has $40,000 of student loan debt or more. Okay? Some of you are looking at me right now like I have mal-tuition. I know what you're talking about. I've got that. $40,000 of student loan debt, that's like $400 a month. Right out of the bat, six months after you graduate, you're paying the student loan company before you default, right, (laughs) and then you're like, please, can you just forgive me, please. Um, Can we elect Bernie Sanders, please, and just forgive all this, Elizabeth Warren, come through, right, we've all been there, we all have the student loan debt, we know this. Most of us have student loan debt, $40,000, and the average income in Orlando is $18,000 a year. See, you guys can do math, I can hear this. Y'all are like, oh, that doesn't work, right? nationally it's true over and over again people our age they're finding they will stay in jobs making 18 19 20 21,000 a year for a decade carrying forty thousand dollars of student loan debt so this person writing the article was like I'm, I'm curious why people are doing this why are you not getting a six-figure job why are you not moving to a town where you can make more why are you not Taking the promotion? Why are you not switching fields? Like, what's going on? And you know what the number one reason that people our age stay in low paying jobs, especially when carrying student loan debt? Meaning. Um, They say, I know I could go work a desk job somewhere and I can make more money, but it would not give me as much meaning and purpose and fulfillment because I'm just getting a paycheck. I would rather stay in debt doing a job that I love and it gives me purpose, then go make six figures somewhere and pay off my debt and be miserable and dying inside of my soul. And all of you here know somebody who's that way or you're someone who's like, that's me. And the reason behind that is because the thing that leaders need most is not a paycheck or more sex or the next big high or the thing. The thing we all need is motivation and purpose. And Jesus says to everybody, listen, if you will lead and evaluate and lead with a positive and then bring up a challenge, and if you will practice teachability in your teams and your groups and your life and your relationships, the thing I'm going to bring, the thing only I can bring is going to be motivation and purpose, and I will sustain you for all of your leadership life. So here's the question I want to ask everybody in this room, number one. Where do you think that God might be calling you to practice leadership in the next few months? Maybe you're someone who's never thought of yourself as a leader before. And the thing God might be stirring in you is, hey, I might need to give some attention towards leading myself. I am way too passive in my life. I am the passenger driver in the story of my life, okay? It's not like God is in the driver's seat, right? I'm not one of those things. I'm a supporting character in the story of my life, and I might need to take a little bit more uh, activity over my life. I need to start leading myself a little bit better. Maybe you're someone who is just entering into a relationship, and you're realizing, I need to lead in a couple a kind of situation, a kind of way. Like, I need to lead in a family. Maybe I need to lead my boyfriend, girlfriend a little better. Maybe I need to step from being girlfriend, boyfriend to being engaged. Maybe we're engaged. It's time to be married. Maybe we're married. It's time to be better married, right? Maybe it's time to have kids. Just kidding. It's not time to have kids. Too soon, Doug. Too soon, right? But maybe some of you need to step into some leadership in your relationships. Maybe some of you need to step into leadership in a group or in a team. Maybe even come into the table for a while and you're like, the next step for me is to be in a group again one way to do that just a quick plug is we're having group launch right after this come see Brit she'll tell you more about that maybe you need to step into leadership in a team maybe you're in your organization you need to take the promotion to do the next thing because God's calling you to step out and leading a little more maybe God's calling you to go on a trip and help us plan a church or be a part of a campus but whatever it is let me ask you this one question where is it God might be stirring you to practice more leadership in the next season of your life So here's how I want us to begin to try to discern that here today. I told you, there's a challenge. We just did the ancient wisdom. Now we're gonna do the kooky spiritual practice. You guys ready? You have permission to get out your phones and turn them on. Okay, swipe them on. Okay, and open up the notes section or whatever you use to take notes. And I'm gonna ask you to consider four questions about your life right now. Just between you and God, wherever you are. Maybe you wanna do the shirt thing where you like because you need to hide it, that's totally okay. But I wanna ask you these questions and I just want you to give one answer to each of these questions. It's a great spiritual exercise. Here are the four questions. Number one, in my life, what's working? What's the positive I can celebrate as I evaluate my life, what's working? Number two, what's not working? What's not working in my life, what's broken? What do I need to address? Number three, what's missing? What in my life seem, where does it seem like there's an absence in my life of something? And number four, what's confused? What am I just confused about? What would I love clarity on? I wanna give you guys two minutes to answer those four questions just with quick bullet points. What's working? What's not working? What's missing? What's confused? Alec, are you able to put all four on the screen? Could you do that real quick? He's gonna do that. Two minutes, I'm gonna set a timer. Here we go. Hey Siri, set a timer for two minutes. I have a british siri it's like my own little butler it's cool two minutes you guys think about this